I hope you're buckled in. And by that I mean I hope you have a Bible in your hand. And in our Pew Bible, uh, page 843, 844 is where I want you to go. I'm a, I lied right away. 845. is why I hope you're buckled in. Because we're going to try to look at what we've seen as a whole that we started but we haven't finished. Because remember how Mark makes these sandwiches out of stories. He, he cuts one story in half and puts another story in the middle and says, here's some meat and some bread for you. Yeah. And what we saw is that he's been doing this all the way through the book. But now, uh, recently, he, he got a, a bigger sandwich going. He decided to add, add some more meat. Right? Not just a little slice of lettuce, right? but like you had, you had your beef sandwich. Now he's putting some ham and some chicken on top. And I call the thing a club. Uh, uh, so we're in the middle of that. And we had a bunch of that happen on Wednesday night as well. So my goal here is to bring you up to speed on that big picture and then show you what comes out of it in our text from today uh, and then set us up for where we're going from here. So to do that, look at first chapter 9, verse 30. Okay, so this is the first section of our primary text for today. And we'll leave what happened before for a moment. We're just going to start with where we start, which is that they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they, as the apostles, did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. That is Jesus' second passion prediction in uh, the book of Mark. I believe in all three synoptics, he makes three passion predictions that serve as like high points in the storyline. So you got, you know, story, 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 I'm going to the cross. Story, 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 I'm going to the cross. And this is the second of these where he's teaching them plainly, uh, the kingdom of God means the son of man must be crucified. Right? That's what the kingdom of God is. The crown will be made of thorns. But we've heard this before with that first passion prediction. Let's just find that for like a, a, a mile marker, right? Turn back to 8 verse 11. Excuse me. Uh, I skipped it. Uh, there it is. Uh, 8 verse 31. It's on page 844. 8 verse 31 to 33. That's the first passion prediction. And actually, in your pew Bible, they're kind of in the same place on the columns or right beside each other. What's right in the middle of these two passion predictions? Can you see the sandwich that's being built right there? Huh? The mountain of transfiguration and the removing of demons that men can't remove even with God's spirit in them. That's right between. What do you think the cross is going to do? <laughs> yeah, The cross is going to be where that God suffers and dies to cast out the strong man, the devil, once and for all. So uh, hopefully you can kind of see that there. But, oh, wait, the transfiguration. Did we look at that yet? And that's where this, this Sunday is a little weird. Yes, we did. That was the first text we looked at way back on Transfiguration Sunday. We started off in the middle of Mark and then jumped to chapter one and have been going since then. So what we're doing today is we're jumping back over that section that we already looked at and looking at what comes next, 
while still trying to tie it all together to what came before. There's only one problem. We skipped four verses doing that. So now, uh, if you would find chapter 8, verse 34, page 844, bottom left column, here's the four verses that happened between Peter being told he's Satan because he doesn't understand the cross and the mountain of transfiguration. Here's what else Jesus does. Uh, he Calling the crowd to him, verse 34, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save my life, excuse me, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, I do want to talk about those verses today, but we're going to go back just a little bit more to tie in what happened Wednesday and where we were last week to that, that whole picture. And then we'll pick up with those verses jump over the transfiguration and run through the end of it together, all right? So, but now uh, let's go back to just where were we last Sunday? Because that's a long time ago in the story. It really is. And where we were is in chapter 7, verse 31 through chapter 8, verse 10. So sort of our focus last week. Um, also, I suppose, 24 to 30. We had these stories about, do you remember, uh, the deaf and mute man who's healed by Jesus like spitting. Do you remember that? Yeah. And, and then we also have the feeding of the 4,000, which is not the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 is the feeding of 5,000 faithful Jews. You should hear that as the feeding of 5,000 believers. And then uh, the feeding of the 4,000 is the feeding of 4,000 uh, Gentiles from outside of Galilee, uh, that is the feeding of 4,000 pagans, that is the feeding of 4,000 unbelievers, except, except they're becoming believers. Sorry, there, there's this thing happening, right, in the middle of all of this. So, so you have then uh, those two stories, but the bread in the sandwich, okay, if we're going to do bread, uh, you know, chickens, your little meat, hams, your little bit better meat, steak in the middle, right, your bread is this Syrophoenician woman, He's up in Tyre and Sidon trying to get a little time away, maybe get a meal, right? And she comes up and she says to him, heal my daughter. And he says, you're a dog. I don't have to heal you at all. I didn't come for you. And she goes, I know, but you can do it anyway. And he goes, yes, I can. Here you go. That story, what's, what's really going on there in our sandwich is you have somebody who should not believe, who should not have any right to approach come Jesus, should not know who Jesus is. She's a woman, which meant that she would not have had the same standing in the culture at all. And she's from Tyre. Oh my goodness. I mean, it's just an awful place. And, and yet she gets Jesus. Now what's the counterpiece story? This is where the sandwich starts to really help. So we're not going to read the next story. Look from, we're going from chapter 7, verse 24 to chapter 8, verse 27. Here's the parallel story. And as you go, I hope you can see this. We're going to move back and forth into the middle as we go. 
But what's the parallel story? It's Peter. Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ and then saying the Christ shall not suffer and die. And Jesus saying, that's what Satan says. But let's look at it this way, paralleling, paralleling the Syrophoenician woman. Well, she's a woman. He's a man. She's a pagan from Tyre. He's an apostle, right? She has no business knowing who he is. He's been called and told, follow me. She gets it. He doesn't. That's the parallel. Right? And now we're going to go in from there. Because remember, who is this about? Is this about them? No. Who is this about? Some, huh? Yes. And I, I've trained you well enough that you said this. That's good. She said Jesus for the internet. But actually, I want Jesus not to be alone in these stories when you're reading them. Because you're there too. Now, it's totally right to say it's not about you. It's about Jesus for you. That's correct. But Jesus for you can't exist without you. And so Jesus for you, guess what that's about? It's about you. Not what you do, but what Jesus does to you. That's the distinction we want to see here, right? But what is happening to you? Well, uh, you were blind, but now you see. You were deaf, ever hearing, but not understanding, yet now you do. You hear and you say, amen, right? Uh, and and you, were, you were mute. You weren't able to speak. You had no word from God of your own native heart, and yet here the spirit has been made to dwell in you and loose your tongue. And then there it is. That's our chicken in the sandwich, our two pieces of chicken. Okay? I hope that's not too profane, to the, the, the metaphor. But so if you look here in the text, what do you have? You have him in... You have to turn the page back and forth. After the Syrophoenician woman, in chapter 7, verse 31 and following, Jesus heals this deaf and mute man. And you can see just before Peter confessing the Christ, in chapter 8, verses 22 and following, you see Jesus healing a blind man. Both events involve uh, his spit. Uh, both events involve sort of a strange kind of uh, weirdness to the miracles. They don't seem to function quite the same way as other miracles do, but there they are. He certainly does the miracles. Yeah? And it's so that you will believe that Jesus is here to do this kind of work on you, not fixing your trick knee or making your hand grow back, but saving your soul giving you eyes to see what the world cannot see, ears to hear what the world cannot hear because they've closed them to the word of God. Yeah. Now going in from there, we have uh, the ham in our sandwich, which is, uh, it, it should be the bread to make the metaphor really work together. But Jesus feeds, you know, the 4,000. You see that there uh, with the bread. And now the parallel story, which starts uh, in verse 14 of chapter 8. And this is, we definitely got into this on Wednesday night, uh, which the, the disciples, uh, after they get on a boat, after the feeding of the 4,000, they're going back to Galilee. And Jesus says to them this very important line, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they begin to worry because no one brought bread. And they think he's hungry and needs a sandwich. Right? The metaphors are mixed right there, but they get very confused. And so he inserts himself into the conversation uh, to tell them that uh, they don't know what he's talking about and he can't believe it, basically. And then the story kind of ends there with that. But you've got this idea of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Or excuse me, that's, uh, it's too easy to do that. Pharisees and the Herodians. 
that is the parallel to our feeding of the 4,000. Can you see how the bread image is being tied together by Mark there? Right? That's why those match. Yeah. And then in the middle of it, you have the Pharisees demanding a sign, which I think you could probably assume is the leaven of the Pharisees. Right? So, so what is the leaven of the Pharisees? The question that I had never thought about before is what's the leaven of the Herodians? Is it the same as the leaven of the Pharisees? And it caused me to do a little digging further back. And I discovered, wow, the Pharisees don't show up much in Mark. Not yet. Nor do the Herodians that much. And nor in any of the books really are the Herodians the big deal. Usually it's the Pharisees and, what did I say? Sadducees, right? Or, or the scribes and the lawyers. You've got those guys moving around. But the Pharisees have been rare in Mark, except back in chapter 3, where they show up and they're pretty upset about Jesus healing a guy on the Sabbath. And they go out and begin plotting to destroy him. It's Mark's language. But they're not alone. Guess who's with them? And it's not the Sadducees. It's the Herodians. Oh, wow, look at that. And so then uh, what is the leaven? I think the leaven may be different because if you move forward, you find a major story about Herod. We looked at it uh, two weeks ago, John the Baptist being killed. And you, you basically learn that Herod is the two-faced cowardly waffler, right? He, his leaven is that when the word of God comes to him, he knows it's true, but he's just not sure he wants to deal with it. And so he keeps it close, but he won't let it ever actually in. Because that would mean he'd have to confront, you know, the woman who's running his life. You know, and we make the joke, she wears the pants, right? But it's, it's not funny. And, and for him, though, it's what it was. And it puts him in a position where he's going to end up killing a prophet out of his cowardice. And you heard his end a few moments ago, right, from the book of Acts. It, it doesn't go well. He ends up getting proud and struck down by God. All right, so the leaven of Herod, cowardice. Yeah, uh, The leaven of the Pharisees, not the same, right? Here, here is, again, this piece of meat uh, from Wednesday nights, where we ended Wednesday night. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So whereas Herod is like, I kind of maybe believe the Pharisees are like, you're the devil. I don't believe nothing you say, nor will I. In fact, I'm going to silence you if I can. Prove yourself to us. And by the way, he just cast out a demon from far away, healed a guy who was deaf and mute, fed 4,000 people with f seven loaves of bread, and they're like, prove it. Right. That's the leaven of the Pharisees, the skeptic, right? The skeptic. I don't believe there's a God. He's never shown himself to me. All right. I mean, yeah. Uh, I, I can't even respond to the scoffer. You shouldn't. He scoffed. All right. You move on. I think I told that story last week about that one pastor. Uh, we'll leave that, leave that there. Okay, so that gets us that sandwich, that big sandwich. You can see the whole thing now as you track through the text. And then what happens in the last piece of, of that sandwich, which is the conversation with Peter, right? He's closing the bread that began with the Syrophoenician woman. He opens this new story of the passion predictions in the same story. Right? So while Peter's confessing the Christ, but not understanding it to show how much the Syrophoenician got it and he didn't, Jesus has still said, I'm going to die. And then two stories later, he says it again. Those two stories in between, the transfiguration, the casting out of that particular demon, then he tells that death and resurrection um, story again. But remember, trapped in there's that little bit of text that now we're going to go line by line through. Verse 34 of chapter 8, calling the crowd. He said, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It is the opposite of saying to Jesus, prove it. It's saying, even when there's no proof, I believe it. Because I'll tell you, the day they nail you to a cross, you're not going to feel loved by God. Not going to feel it all. You're going to feel hated unless you believe you're loved by God and he doesn't have to prove it to you in this age. Not any more than he already did by raising Jesus from the dead, baptizing you, giving you the sign and seal of the supper, the blood of Jesus every week. He does all that too, right? But this is all about the age to come where the proof will be seen. So the opposite of the leaven of the Pharisees is I believe it, not, not prove it. And so if you're going to believe in Jesus, you're going to believe in what Luther called a theology of the cross. Theology is a 50-cent word. It means knowledge of God. Every one of you is a theologian. By that I mean every one of you has a way that you know God. Every one of you has a way that you know God, and the way God tells you to believe that is that it is all about the cross. Jesus' cross, which is your cross. Making Jesus' tomb your tomb, making Jesus' body in resurrection your body. But if you're going to go after him, if you're going to be part of the resurrection, it means you're going to get crucified in his terms. Now, I don't say, therefore, that every single one of you will die in crucifixion. I only say that every single one of you will die probably in pain or confusion. That is indeed the future of every person in this room. And you can't follow Jesus if you don't believe that. It should be obvious. You shouldn't have to follow Jesus to know that death is coming, right? Right? But, but we kind of run around like it's not a lot. And he says, you know, pick up that cross, Or maybe say it differently, run to the tomb. We'll we'll do that in Easter, I think. We'll talk about that in Easter. Uh, But second line, verse 35, For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That that verse always gives me a little struggle in my my heart and soul. It really does. I kind of like my life. I I do. I I think it's pretty good. And so it's like, oh man, did did I save my life? I mean, I'm going to lose my life. Now, that's not the way this text is really supposed to be finally heard. But what it demonstrates is how a riddle from Jesus, a proverb from Jesus, can hit you a million different ways. Because you can just as certainly know that you lost your life the day you were baptized. Uh, the, The liturgy tells you that it kills you. You're dead. You already died. You lost your life the day you were baptized. If you're living as if you didn't, that's a strange thing. You might live like you're immortal now. That that would maybe change the perspective in the morning. Uh, So uh, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Outside of Jesus, there's no life. That's that's the simple solution there. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I think this is really the piece that we want to ask going forward in the stories we're going to have after this. And it is, what would you give to get to heaven. And to ask this question honestly, you have to imagine that Jesus doesn't get you there. So uh, please, Jesus gets you there. Remember that. 
But if you were trapped in a scenario where you had to get out and that it was eternal and it was up to you and you had all that you have, what would you hold back? What would you hold on to in this life in order to like, it'd be good enough to not go to heaven? Is it, what would you not sacrifice, right? That's a pretty powerful question. And Jesus is going to make it more powerful than you think in, in a few moments with the rest of the story. But, so we'll come back to that there, right? Uh, for what can a man give for his soul? Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Uh, that is the setup here for some, some doctrine, some teaching about judgment day. And the word Jesus will use several times about, about hell, about hell. But to do that, we're going to skip over the transfiguration now, right? All the way over to the bottom of page 845. And we'll go past the second passion prediction to verse 33. Uh, the title of the section is, Who is the Greatest? Uh, they, this is Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum, verse 33. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silence, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, the rest of it you've heard read. We're going to go back and, and get a running start verse by verse through the rest of it then. Uh, but what's going on around this discussion of hell, first and foremost, is Jesus' own chosen followers having a conversation about who is going to have the coolest life. Which Jesus will show us in a few moments, this is really a conversation about who gets to have the most power and authority. That is what posturing and vanity generally are meant to gain. But in the way they're talking about it, uh, they're just using that word greatest. It's a very plain word, although it sounds better in Greek, mega, you know. Which of us is the most mega? Uh, and not, not the, uh, the voting red kind of way, right? Um, the, but the biggest, strongest kind of way. Uh, so uh, that's the conversation they're having on the road. Uh, Jesus is not in this conversation. But if you notice that the, the man, Jesus, the actual guy from history, he doesn't really avoid awkward conversations. You notice that? He, he's not, um, I would call myself conflict avoidant. I'm conflict avoidant. I don't like that. I think it's better to be able to handle conflict peaceably. You know, when you have a disagreement with someone, have a conversation without it being like a fight. Uh, and that would be a conflict of ideas. Uh, but I don't. Uh, I'm like a lot of Americans. I'd rather just kind of keep the peace. Right? I'm conflict avoidant. Jesus is like, like conflict not avoidant. <laughs> uh, I don't know what you'd call him. I don't think he's starting the conflict. He's recognizing there is a conflict and he's not going to leave it there. And the conflict is in what his disciples are saying versus what he just told them. You save your life, you're going to lose it. What do you mean, who's the greatest? And so he's also going to be teaching, if he would be first, he would be last. 
in the same section because it's the same as if you save your life, you'll lose it. Notice the, the parallel proverb. It's basically about, yes, a level playing field, but no, not communism, actually kingdom, wherein the king is the king and everybody else is a citizen of the king. And so wherever you are, guess who puts you there? The king. And so whatever authority exists anywhere, guess who's his actually is? The king. So who's the greatest? Oh, maybe, maybe you can see why Jesus is a little focused here. Because frankly, it's not about he needs to be called the greatest for him. He didn't need us. We need to know who the greatest is because he is. And knowing that is life. Knowing that is life. What were you talking about? <laughs> they, they were arguing about who is the greatest. Verse 35, he calls the 12 and he says this proverb, if you'd be first, you'd be last, must be servant. That means wherever you are, whatever authority you have, you use it for the good of others. If you pick up one of those Sons of Solomon documents uh, in the back, there might be this page in the Daughters of Wisdom one too, I'm not sure, but there's something called the Patriarch Principle. It's basically the fourth commandment and the idea of how God built authority into the world. And it's very useful, it cuts through a lot of things. Uh, and it's that all authority is given from above to below for those further below still. And the greatest example of this is a, a father has authority over his infant son. Not for the father, for the son, to protect him. And so all authorities from above to below, for below, further still. So whatever you are in the kingdom of God, you end up being a general or a president, uh, you're still just, uh, you're all on the same level. First is last, last is first. Jesus gave the authority. Jesus gave the works. Jesus gave the growth. What do you have that you did not receive? That's kind of the idea there. Verse 35, verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And that means he receives the father. So having said to them that all the authority belongs to the king, all right, that's the idea here. He then takes the most, actually, let me say it this way, takes the least respected kind of human in their society that you could find, which is like a seven or eight or nine-year-old child. In American civilization, we idolize our children in order for them to sell us more stuff for our children. It's a big racket. You should look into it. Uh, but uh, we treat them uh, still like they're kind of human. Uh, the effect of Christianity on Western civilization was to say that every person mattered, right? <laughs> Uh, uh, was it a person's a person no matter how small? Horton, here's a who, right? That, that is a Christian idea, uniquely so. Even if Dr. Seuss was not a Christian, he got it from someone. Um, so Jesus takes this little person who in the ancient world was not respected. And to, to really get this, again, you have to kind of think in different terms. You don't live with survival as your primary concern. You're not worried about survival by and large. If you were, you'd feel the way about seven and eight-year-olds the way they did in the ancient world, which is that they're valuable later. You need to care for them now, but they're not going to add anything to what we're doing that's positive. So something you'd never hear in the ancient world was, hey kids, what do you want for dinner? 
You wouldn't do that. Why? Because they're not competent to answer rightly. And whether you agree with that or not, you have to hear that as the reason Jesus puts the kid in the middle of the, of the people right now. He's saying, if I send you someone that nobody would ever listen to in my name, guess what? You should listen to him. Because if you listen to him, you hear me. If you hear me, you hear God. And so, I mean, here's the real insult in this. Who's the child the metaphor for? Peter, James, John, you know? They're like thinking, I'm special. And he's like, you're kind of like this little kid with the snot running down his nose. That's about how I see you right now, right? And that's how he sees it. He puts it there so that they'll understand when they go forth with his authority, it's not about them, right? It's about him. Then, in response to this, right? If I send him, it's okay. John says, but there was this guy who you didn't send. And we saw him, right? John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So, so Jesus, is it okay if there's someone who's a Christian but isn't under our authority? It's kind of their question. And Jesus is going to give a mixed answer. So by no means does he say, don't worry about it, let it go, everything's fine, people do whatever they want. He doesn't say that. But he keeps the focus on their judgment of others to bring it back to their right assessment of themselves. And he basically says, if I want him to do that, what's that to you? How would you know? Jesus says, actually, 39, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Right? Shorthand, Jesus says, I got this, guys. This is the point. Right? And so if I inspired via the Holy Spirit, via the scriptures alone, some guy to decide to preach Jesus while Jesus is over there in Galilee, Jesus says, what's it to you? That's okay. He's on my side if I sent him. But if I didn't send him, verse 40, uh, verse, uh, yeah, 41. I'm sorry. I'm going to skip 41 and 42. This is important for the context, though. If I didn't send him, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So Jesus doesn't say that guy's fine just the way he is. Again, he says, I've got it taken control of. And if he deserves judgment, he's going to get it. Now, whatever he's doing, you think should stop? You're right. You should go and tie a giant heavy thing around his neck and throw him in the ocean. Let him die because it'd be better than what he's doing. But the thing is, that's judgment day. God's going to do that on judgment day. Nothing that's done wrong is not going to be righted on judgment day. And so why are they worried about authority they have not been given? That's the question you're supposed to ask. Ask it of yourself. Why am I worried about authority I have not been given? I guarantee you 95% of your worries this week are about authorities you have not been given. And probably because you're trying to make your life better, which is normal, but it's trying to be the greatest. See what I'm saying? I don't want to stop you from doing good work. Do good work. Fix the wall. That's not what I'm saying, right? Uh, but but uh, see here again, who builds the house? You? Or, or does Jesus give that growth, right? Jesus gives that growth. 
So in the middle, he also has this line, verse 40 and 41, uh, for the one who is not against us is for us. For I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means uh, lose his reward. Uh, Which in short means that all Christians are Christians. And we shouldn't be surprised if Christianity exists somewhere other than where we are. As long as it's Christianity, it's Christianity. How do you know what's Christianity and what's not? Well, that's why we say the creed every week. I guess it's supposed to be your, your rule of thumb test, right? Here's their fundamental points. It says this, this, and that. Does it include a virgin birth of Jesus, right? It's not quite the fundamentalist principles. It's better than that. Uh, but that, that's our test for Christianity. And then uh, if they are Christians, uh, then indeed, um, the one who is not against us is for us. And uh, the way that I think this idea can come to smack dab home to us as a congregation today is to realize that we're not the only Christian church on this corner. Although we got the corner, which is awesome. Uh, but, but we are one of four Christian churches at the end of Riverside before it turns into Springfield. And uh, the others are, there's a, a African black uh, Baptist church that just moved in like two, three years ago. It was right during COVID, I think, um, uh, from downtown somewhere. Uh, they're right there. And then on your right, uh, you pass the Assemblies of God Pentecostal speaking in tongues church who always has giant piles of crates and semi trucks in their driveway and lots of cars because they run a pretty extensive food program for the poor. Something to to kind of see and marvel at and thank Jesus for as we strive to do things like consider what it would be like to have a library of good things or whatever other things we do in our corner. Look, they're feeding the poor right next door. Isn't that good? God remembers that. When their prayers go up, do you think he's listening? Well, they speak in tongues. He must not be. Well, ah, they're wrong about the tongues, I think. But it doesn't mean their prayers aren't heard if they're praying to Jesus Christ through the blood of the cross. And then down just a little further, I've told this joke twice. Okay, there's a joke coming. No one laughed either time. Okay, so, so um, but I think it's hilarious. Like the whole world at least three months ago, two months ago, was worried about the Russians. Like they're, they're moving Tolstoy out of like libraries on the East Coast because the Russians are so dangerous. And, you know, you drive past a Russian Orthodox church every time you go down Riverside, they're, they're right there. They're probably spies, you know. I, I, no, there's a Russian Christian group living right down the street. And if you want to see some live Russian immigrants uh, that are about, you know, 20 years old, males, uh, they play soccer Sunday afternoons uh, during the summer. I've, I've thought about joining them. I never have. Uh, but what I am doing more and more now is thanking Jesus for these three other churches that are right here. Even though they're my competition as a professional businessman. But they are. I mean, they really are. Uh, the way that America runs churches. Yeah? But I'm done with the way that America's run churches. I like the way Jesus runs churches. He put these four churches right here. And he said to us, don't worry about them so much. Pray for them. Right? And then you take heed you take heed to yourself, right? If you give a cup of water to the one who belongs to Christ, you won't lose your reward. And, and that text, that last verse, please understand, that kind of means paying the pastor's salary in our day and age. Like he's speaking to the 12, not to the whole crowd. So he doesn't say to all Christians, if all Christians get a cup of water, then that is a reward, right? They're going to get reward. It's when they receive you because I sent you. Remember that whole bit about the little kid? When they receive you, because I sent you, they receive me. They're not going to lose their reward. 
So again, like you run into the Christian pastor from, from next door and you treat him with respect, right? And, and you maybe even call him pastor until he proves to you that he shouldn't because you're just, you're just giving that cup of water to the servant of Jesus, right? Um, that's a tender place to be though. We don't want to encourage any lies. Yeah. But here's the thing, like it, at a certain point, um, when the Christian churches are arguing over things that only Christians argue over, if we can't let that just be us in a corner and realize that that being us, we're at war against a multi-headed beast of anti-Christian monolithic global power that's not new, Assyria, um, Nimrod. I mean, these empires have been there forever. We're up against this uh, child mutilating and molesting, poor people not caring one whit about, money laundering, drug addicted, I don't know, elite class that is as religious as anything. And the one thing that unites all of it is they hate Christianity. And if you watch and listen, you know it because they hate Christianity. Everything else they do, it's fine. Christianity, we hate it. And they, they crush it every chance they get. So the fact that we have, again, four pastors, five that count Pastor Cypress too, right? On this corner, do they have more over there? All that the text is saying is instead of pointing fingers over there, worry about your own business. Were you sent? Then preach. Are you a congregation? Then hear and sing, right? Be who you are with the truth that Jesus gives you. And then see that, um, well, false teaching is quite dangerous. We talked about verse 42 already, right? That the one who actually goes and destroys the church causes one of these little ones to sin in my name, right? Teaches falsely in Jesus' name and it, it causes the little one to become an unbeliever. That person's better off dead before they did that. Hell is going to be worse for them. It'd be better for be, be brutally murdered by the mob than to go to hell. And that idea is what's going to keep coming back again, right? He's basically said over and over again since lose your life and save it is it'd be better to lose now so that when what comes later is good. He said that over and over again, he's going to do it one more time here by pointing out how, remember I asked the question, what would you give up or rather, what would you hold back from God in sacrifice if it meant heaven or hell? And Jesus says, verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Same idea three times, foot and eye. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So three stories, all the same, kind of like parables, but effectively saying, what wouldn't you give to not go to hell? 
I, I honestly, I can almost get to the point where I imagine gadgeting my own eye out. I've seen enough movies that I can almost imagine like the feeling it might be like, and I don't like that feeling. I don't want to imagine that. And then if I ask the question, you know, could I do that if that's what Jesus asked me to do? And it's kind of like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> my own? I, I, let someone else do it. I won't have a choice. But if they did, and he let it happen, would I still trust him? That's the real question. Or should I say, that's the real promise. Yes, you will. You hear the difference between the question and the promise, between the law and the gospel. Now, will you trust him? Yes, you will. How do you know you will? Because his, he's him. He's your God. He's the one doing this. He's the one saying this. Salt is good. If it loses its ability to be salty, what can you do? Who's he talking about? Well, first him, he's going to salt the world with fire. But what about you? What if you're not salty? What if you can't endure the fire? Well, that's just it. You can't. But he can make it good again. So he says, you're just with each other. The first is last. The last is first. Save your life. Lose your life. Lose your life. Save your life. Hey, guys, stop arguing about who's the greatest. Hell is coming and you're not going to it. The last thing we're going to do is we're going to talk just about hell in general as a theology, okay? And then we're going to end it with, like, some awesome Isaiah. So I think it's pretty clear from the text hell exists. You can find Christians online today who will teach you that hell does not exist. Uh, it's mean. That's their, that's their argument. It's mean, right? A loving God wouldn't do that. Um, Jesus is pretty clear. The worm does not die. The fire does not go out. That's the quote from Isaiah. Jesus calls it hell. Uh, well, the word hell isn't in Greek. It's Gehenna. Gehenna. Um, it, it is a garbage jump that is so filthy and filled with refuse that it's always on fire outside Jerusalem. A real actual place. You know, a garbage jump on fire. Uh, refuse. Uh, and he's, he talks about the final judgment, the lake of fire, as that. Uh, uh, it's pretty clear he believes there's evil a place where evil will be put. Now, to me, uh, the, the easiest way uh, to see that hell is therefore good is to remember that the first one to be thrown into hell is the dragon, is the devil. The devil is what hell is for. It's his cage. Huh? And you might say, well, why not just annihilate the devil? Make him go away once and for all, forever. Just snap your fingers and he's done. And you're like, well, the answer is you really want to give him what he wants. Now, think about that one for a bit. He doesn't have a plan to rule. He only has a plan to destroy. And God's not going to let him get away with that. Huh? So, so hell isn't mean. Hell is how you deal with a fallen archangel. And his angels who follow him, which includes the men and women who do not repent when told, you're saved. <laughs> you're saved. It's done. It's finished. So hell is imperative to the Christian confession. It's imperative to the Christian faith. It's why it is mentioned in the creeds. Yeah. But now to talk about hell, uh, he does reference this Isaiah verse about the worms and the fire. So if you could turn yourself to Isaiah Chapter 66, although we're going to start in some of 65, but they're on pages 624 and 625 in your pew Bible. 
And we'll go to 626.2. This is the end of the book of Isaiah. In fact, let's start at verse 24 of chapter 66, page 626. Verse 24 of chapter 66. The last half of the verse. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. So Jesus, talking about hell, quotes the very last verse, the very last part of the last verse of Isaiah. And if you take the whole verse, uh, it says above it, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die. The theology of hell in the life of the world to come, and it includes the fact that we'll still see it. Because it is proof of God's glory that the devil could not overthrow him. An everlasting sign. And you might think, man, this sounds kind of harsh. Yeah, it, I guess, except for that the rest of what's going around you is the new heavens and the new earth. Everything's perfect. So now, to close this morning, we're going to take maybe two or three minutes longer than normal. But I'm going to read from chapter 65, verse 17 to the end of chapter 65. Then I'm going to jump down uh, to chapter, verse 12 of 66. So I'm going to read 65, 17 to 25. And 66, 12 to the end. And then since the end is so harsh, I'll probably tell you one more good thing in Jesus' name. Here we go. For behold, God says, Jesus says, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of Jesus Christ and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Verse 12 of chapter 66. For thus says Jesus, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. And the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. You shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So will I comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of Jesus shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, Jesus will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will Jesus enter into judgment 
and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by Jesus Christ shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into gardens, as a reference to pagan shrines, okay? Those who are going to worship the pagan shrines, following one another in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abominations and mice shall come to an end together, declares Jesus. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lude, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. Think Matthew 28, go into all nations, here we are. And they shall bring all your brothers, that's us, from all the nations as an offering to Jesus Christ on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says Jesus, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of Jesus Christ. And some of them I will also take for priests and for Levites, says Jesus Christ. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says Jesus Christ, so shall your offspring and your name remain. For new moon to new moon and Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares Jesus. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Again, like, if I just said in the name of Jesus there, it's kind of like, oh, amen. All right. Well, Law and gospel, right? That's law, right? That's why that filter is useful. The law applies to you as a Christian, but not in a condemnatory way. You're never condemned by the law. If you feel condemned, it, it does that job, but you're not actually condemned by the law. That's the gospel, that you're not condemned by the law. That when God judges you, it'll be based on Jesus' blood, period. It's a beautiful thing. Now, in that then, just know, if you can take this with you today, even hell in eternity will be a reminder of how good Jesus is to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise for prayer.